<laughs> you know, too often we approach our marriages and our family with that same uh, question in mind, though. What's in it for me, right? And that's the wrong question, but we get so caught up in our culture, we get so caught up in our world, we get so caught up in ourselves that we ask that question all the time. What's in this for me, right? Someone comes to sell you insurance at your house, what's in this for me? Someone wants to sell you a new car, what's in this for me? Someone's going to sell you a new house, what's in this for me? Someone's offering you a new job, what's in this for me? Someone's offering you a vacation package that will change your life, what's in this for me? So it's a common question for us to get very self-focused when it comes to our marriage and it comes to our families, we often will ask that same question, just like they were in the video in a funny way. What's in this for me? The consumer mentality consumes us. And we become people that ask of our families and even ask of God, what's in this for me? You know, over the last number of years, 20-some years of ministry, I've met a lot of couples that want to get married. And they come into my office and they sit down and I do a premarital interview with them. And they are just, they're willing to do anything to get married. They will do counseling sessions. They will watch videos. They will do workbooks. They will meet with mentors. They'll go to workshops. They'll sit with the pastor and they'll sit in men with men's groups and answer awkward questions about themselves for hours on end just to get married because both of them are coming in with this attitude. What can I give to this other person? What can I, you know, they're starry-eyed, they're ready to go. They're willing to recite vows like this. Listen to the vows that I have them recite at their wedding ceremony. And I'll just fill in a couple of names here. I, Karen, take you, John, to be my wedded husband. I promise before God and before these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, I pledge you my undying love. They repeat those to each other with tears in their eyes, and there's tears in the audience, and they light unity candles or do the mixing of the sands to see that two worlds are coming together. I've even had people take two different bags of soil and plant a tree together that will bloom up and grow because of their great love. They're giving undying, unconditional, agape love for each other. And then a year later, they are in my office with a glare in their eye. And it's not from a tear. It's because one wants to hit the other and the other one would like to hit the other one back. And I wonder what happened. What went on? Where went all this unconditional self-giving, what can I do to help kind of love? What happened to it? Well, their sin nature rose up. Two sinners get together in the same household. Stuff's going to happen that's not going to be really nice. Right? The culture influences us. And we started to look at, and they started to look at, rather than what can I give to this relationship, they started to look at what can I get from this relationship? What's in this for me? But the Bible shows us in Ephesians chapter 5 that a question that we should be asking sounds something more like this. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? I want to read to you from Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 4. Let me read it to you. It starts with this phrase, which is the overarching theme, grammatically, theologically, and relationally in this passage. Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, for it's the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So there it is. Easy as pie, right? You do your part, I do my part. I was reading this this week and studying for it, for the last two weeks, studying to do this message, and something was bothering me. As I kept reading it, I kept thinking, but it doesn't work. You do your part, I do my part. Here's the list. Here's what dads do, here's what husbands do, here's what moms do, here's what mothers do and wives do. Here's what children do. Just do your part. Just do your verse, right? You do your verse. I do my verse. Everything works out. That's if we leave out the main verse, which says submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ, which means this. If you are somebody who has been saved by God's amazing grace, and your soul has been redeemed by him, and he has poured out his unconditional love on the cross to you, and you have received that, out of that relationship with him, and that cascading, amazing, unconditional, unmerited, unchanging love, that's what influences you and empowers you to submit to one another. That's what informs it all. It's not, you do my part, I'll do my part, And we'll see if this really works out. It's, I'm doing my part in order to love you and care for you and to say to you, not what can I get out of this, but what can I do? What can I bring to this relationship with you as a spouse or a child or a family? And that's the question that changes when it is informed by God's unconditional love. So let's talk a little bit about mutual submission this morning in your outline. The first one, mutual submission is the key to a great family. It's the key to a great family, but how do we do it? It sounds simple, but when I get down to it, it's really hard for me to do it. I told you already that this week and last week as I was preparing for this message, I kept saying to myself, you know, I just need the Sunday off. I'm not doing that message. I can get another staff member to preach this message. I'm just not up for it. I'm not up for it. I, I can't one more time stand in front of a congregation and tell them, you do your part, you get the other person to do their part, and that's what it's all about. 
Everyone just kind of does their part. Because I kept thinking about that, and I thought, that doesn't sound like a family. That doesn't sound like unity. That doesn't sound like love. That doesn't sound like God. That just sounds like legalism. That sounds like rules. That sounds like condemnation. That sounds like pressure. That sounds like an easy way of explaining how it should be, and then I can just walk off the platform, waltz off, and all of you sit out there and go, yeah, but it's not that easy. And I know inside of myself, yeah, but it's not that easy. So I want to address that this morning. I want to be honest and address with you something that as I was getting ready for this message, I was preparing for another retreat that I had just yesterday with our elders. And I was going through a curriculum called soul keeping. And in that, in that soul keeping curriculum, it talked about the difference between living under performance and living under grace. And I thought, ah, that's it. That's the key. That's what mutual submission out of reverence for Christ is based on. It's based on grace and not performance. And I just want to talk to you about this for a couple minutes this morning. And um, I know when I did this this morning, I bring that my flip charts in and stuff. I know that the technical team, the technical team works very, very hard every week to help have the PowerPoint slides right, to help any visuals that we have so that you can see it in an auditorium of this size. And then I come down at the last minute and I throw a wrench right into their works. So I apologize to all you guys back there. They really care that you get, get to see everything. I don't. I don't really care. I just throw a wrench into it at the last works and mess things up, okay? So I have this flip chart this morning and some of you can see it. I, I hope that most of you can see it. If you can't and you want it later on, I actually, we can scan it in from the book and I can just send it to you. So you can put that on your card, okay? Um, but the first one is when we look at, you know, I can look at the Bible and I can look at what it says, what Joel should do, and I can underline my verses. Now, what I tend to do is underline Debbie's verses and Josh's verses and Hannah's verses and Caleb's verses and your verses, okay? What we tend to do is we see, oh, other one. That's what the wife should be doing. Or she should be, oh, you know, hey, there, there's your memory verse right there, babe. See it right there? Put it on the fridge this morning. How about that? Cut it out with pinking shears. That was special. Put some sparklies on it for you. That's what we tend to do. And then we start to look at our own. We, we get serious. Even if we get serious about our relationship with God and relationship with each other, you know, start looking at that list and this is what I got to do. I gotta love my wife as Christ loved the church. I gotta lay down my life for her. I'm gonna be self-sacrificial. I'm gonna make sure she knows it too. Every time I sacrifice, I'm gonna let her know it's self-sacrificial love that I'm giving to her. I'm bringing it, just like Jesus did. Hanging on the cross today, babe. Hanging on the cross for you. Taking the bullet. And so I start working on my list, and I get so involved in my list, and here, and that's what it starts. The performance start cycle always starts with achievement. What, what I'm doing, what I'm giving, what I'm working on. Achievement is about what I'm working on. And when we're in the performance cycle, we start with achievement because we say, if I achieve my part, then I can stand back and wipe my hands. I've done what I can do. The rest is up to you, right? And we're hoping that if we work hard enough and achieve enough and do the right Bible things and so forth, that then that will lead to some significance. That we'll feel significance. We'll feel some sense of worth or honor. I've done my stuff. I've checked my list. I've, I've fought the good fight. I've done all that stuff, right? 
Hopefully that will lead to some sustenance, some daily bread for me, some feeling that, oh, I can breathe, I can stop, because I'm doing the work, and I'm working on my significance, and hopefully if I do these things, that will move me over here to acceptance. And acceptance is I'm hoping that my wife and my children and my church and my employer and the people around me will accept me and see that I'm a good, hard-working person and I deserve a little pat on the back. I deserve some acceptance. I deserve some love. But the problem with this model, the performance cycle, is see all these arrows on the outside? That is pressure. You could write out here guilt, shame, external pressure, internal pressure, whatever. And we have to keep ourselves in this pressure cooker to keep ourselves going. Because it's all about the externals and doing the right things and getting the right things down. And guess what? When I live my life this way, when I start thinking this way, guess who I do this to? I don't just do it for myself. I impose it on my wife. I impose it on my children. I impose it on my church. I impose it on my friends. If I'm working hard, you better be working hard to do your point part, okay? If I'm working hard on significance, you're only significant when you're working hard. I'm only going to give you a piece of daily bread when you're working hard and you're, you're working hard on our stuff. And I'll only give you a little bit of acceptance, just enough to keep you on the treadmill. I'll give you a little affirmation. I'll keep you on the treadmill. Keep the cycle going. Keep things going. Unfortunately, many of us end up living our life this way relationally, theologically. We live our life this way, not taking into account the main verse of Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ, that your relationship with God and his unfailing, unchanging, amazing love infusing you and not the pressure of life or the performance cycle is what should inform your life. Fortunately, Pastor Rick reminded us last week of what this looks like. Remember when he talked to us about God's amazing grace, his amazing love? Remember he talked about it reversing the curse? That there's this curse that's come upon mankind, and, but it, the amazing love of God comes to reverse the curse through the power of the cross. And what God came to do was reverse this cycle, the performance cycle, and to replace it with something called the grace cycle. Now, the grace cycle is different in that it's not built on pressures from the outside and pressuring and shaming and guilting ourselves or others into doing the right things, but it is empowered from the inside by God's amazing grace coming to reside within us when we accept Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to reside within then we have empowering grace within us that gets filled up and filled up and filled up and filled up all the time. That amazing grace then influences all these other areas of our life. And we start, instead of ending with acceptance, we begin with acceptance. And our acceptance is based on who Christ says we are and who Christ has made us to be. And the Christ says, and while you were yet a sinner, I died for you and I came to you and I accept you and I forgive you. You are to totally, fully accepted and loved. It's God's empowerment, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation model for our lives individually, for our marriages, 
and for our family. And then out of acceptance, you, you, you think of this. Think of when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And what did the Father say out loud about him? There was a voice that came from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had yet to do a miracle, yet to give a good teaching, yet to call the twelve, yet to do all that stuff. But before he had done one last thing, the Father said, I affirm him, I'm well pleased in him. He's my son, and I love him dearly. And that's what Christ and God says of us. Under Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, we're accepted, we're loved, we're redeemed, we're empowered, we're forgiven. God has a dream for us in our life to live out, and he's infused that dream through amazing grace. The next is sustenance. Sustenance is all about the fact that now that I have amazing grace, and, and I, I, I have amazing grace coming in me all the time and around me all the time, I have the ability to choose amazing grace in any moment. I have the ability to choose in any moment whether I'm going to live by works performance or whether I'm going to live under the empowering grace of God. I have a choice. I'll give you an example of this yesterday. Yesterday I had to drop my son off at the airport pretty early in the morning down in Washington, D.C. So my youngest son is going back to Western Colorado State University where he goes to school at. So I'm dropping him off. We had to leave at 3.30 in the morning in order to get there in time. I had to retreat. I had to come back and, and do the rest of the day. We leave at 3.30 in the morning. We're going down. We're having a great time. We're getting up to getting him on the airplane and stuff. And of course, now you can't go to the gate anymore, you know, unless they strip search you and put you in jail for two years or something. Then you might be able to join someone at the gate. You probably came to do that. So the, 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 the guy that was, you know, wanding everybody down and checking, pre-checking everybody out, he noticed there were five or six of us parents and we were having a hard time letting go. You know, we're holding on to their shirts and we're, you know, taking stuff out of their backpack and we're, you know, we're just having a hard time letting go of our kids. And, uh, so he calls us over. He says, you know, you guys can stand right along the wall right here and you can watch them go through. And as he's going through and, you know, taking off his backpack, I'm thinking, man, he should have planned better. You'd never wear lace-up shoes on a flight. Wear slip-ons. You never put change in your pocket. Don't wear your watch. Put it in your backpack. You, can, you know, and I'm watching him go through there, but most of all, I'm thinking to myself, this is just wrong. I'm going to miss him. I just had four good weeks with him. This is just wrong. He's going to school in western Colorado. I'm here in Pennsylvania. This is just wrong. You know, can, can I room with him? Couldn't we hang out together? Wouldn't that be just great for him if I was his roomie at college? <laughs> so in that moment, I was choosing Despair. I was connecting with my feelings, but as I was leaving, it was still dark out at that time, Washington, D.C., and I'm coming up along George Washington Parkway, and I can see the beauty of, you know, the Washington Monument and all those different things over there. I'm kind of, yeah, that's beautiful, but i got to get going. It's still dark out. I'm just kind of feeling this, this isn't the right thing. And then as I started to drive through Maryland, the sun started to come up. And I felt God's Spirit say to me, yes, this is right. This is a passage for your son. Bless him in it. Bless him in it. I stopped to get a cup of coffee, so I just shot him a quick text. Said, hey, miss you already, love you. I think you're going to have a great semester. I'll be praying for you. In that moment, I had a choice. 
am I going to get under God's unconditional love and have a moment with Christ? Or am I just going to stay in despair about my son? Or am I going to embrace that this is a good transition for him and for me? Am I going to be a blessing? Or am I going to withhold blessing or be a blessing? That's what sustenance is about. Taking a hold of God's amazing grace in the moment. Significance. Significance is all about it's a gift. You know, we think significance is if I say you're significant, then you're significant, right? Significant is a gift from God. God says you're significant. God says I've given you gifts and talents and abilities. God says that even if you don't employ them right now, as you sit there in a chair listening to a message, you're significant because it's a gift from God. And significance is also a gift that we give to others. We tell other people, even when you're not performing perfectly or right, you're significant to me. You're part of my family. As a couple, we're called together. You're significant to me. What you say, what you think, what you feel, how you act, how you live your life, is significant to me. It's a gift from God through us. And then it ends at achievement. It's interesting that if you look at what Jesus says about achievement in the scriptures, one of the most poignant scriptures he has about achievement goes like this. It's found in the book of John. And he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. What does achievement mean when it comes to the kingdom? Achievement means bearing the fruit of God in your life. How do I achieve in the kingdom? I abide in Christ. I make sure that my soul that always exists before God in the presence of God, I make sure that I know that. Make sure that I keep abiding in Him. That I take in His Word. That I lift up prayers. That I sing songs of praise. That I stop in quiet moments in my life and I take in the beauty of of a sunrise and let God speak to me about the goodness of it as it relates to my relationship with my son and my family. It means that I stay attentive to God's work and being with God in my life. I can only live out of the grace cycle as much as I keep myself connected to the purveyor, the giver, the filler of amazing grace. Because you know what happens in my life with grace? I leak. (laughs) I let some grace out, but I need more in. And so I need to keep going back to the source again and again. I need to learn how to attend to my soul, how to have spiritual practices and pathways and people around me that keep me attending to my soul because my soul always exists in the presence of God. It's never removed from it. So I must attend to it and see it and hear from God and be coached by God and help from God or else I become a Christian who's trying to keep a list. And I become a legalist. And I become a guilt and shame Christian. And I become a a Christian of I should so you should. We should. You know what we should do in the church? Stop shooting all over each other, okay? Okay. But the only way that we can do that is to get under a continual flow of God's amazing grace into our life. So I want to talk to you about 
how we can get from flip chart page number one, performance, to flip chart page number two, infused by grace. Because it's easy for me to say, okay, here's flip chart one, here's flip chart two, just do it, right? Just like you were supposed to do the list, just do that. Just be infused by grace. You're all sitting out there going, nice flip charts, how do you do that? How do you get from one to two? Well, I know one way to trip the trigger of going from performance to grace. I know one way. I know there's many ways. Uh, and I don't, I don't always succeed in being the grace-filled person. But I'm finding this. It comes down to a choice, and that choice is about mutual submission. And point two, mutual submission asks this question, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? Instead of pressuring people or applying people or trying to even pressure myself, a lot of times when we're on this performance thing, man, we're pressuring ourselves all over the place. We got all kinds of messages running through our minds about a good Joel will, a good person will, a good Christian will, a good student will, a good husband will, a good wife will, a good son or daughter will, a good, you know, whatever. A good employee would. I mean, we've got all this stuff running and racing through our mind and coursing through our veins. And so how do we stop that? The simple way of doing it is to follow the example of Christ. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans 5, 6 through 8. He says this, Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. Underline that. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for the sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble can inspire us to to a selfless sacrifice, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. What did Christ do? Christ, in effect, said to the Father, what can I do to help? I imagine in my mind's eye the Father and the Son and the Spirit in heaven, together, perfect unity, but looking down at the creation that they had made, which had rebelled and fallen out of its original design. Its original design was to run like this. All of creation, grace-filled, made in the knowledge and the image of its creator, made in God's image. And those made in God's image are taking the rest care of the rest of creation, and they're walking with the Father in the cool of the evening. He's filling them back up all the time, and they've got this grace-filled relationship with him. But something happened and got thrown off, and now everything is under this performance model where people think they have to work to achieve grace from God and forgiveness from God. And they're all screwed up. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit see this. And they say, what are we going to do about it? And I imagine Jesus just turning to the Father and saying, what can I do to help? I say that because as I read Christ's life, I see him doing that. He finds people that are marginalized. And he says to them, what can I do to help? And he heals them and he restores them. And he restores lepers, even though one comes back and nine leave. Because amazing grace... And leading a grace-filled life, it's pretty risky. God's pretty risky with us, isn't he? 
He takes risks on us. He forgives us, and we still don't do the right thing. He forgives us our sin, and we sin again. It's pretty risky. It's not locked tight. I'm here to tell you today, leading a grace-filled life, you won't have everything in line, but you will have everything in line in here. And God will align your inside with your outside, and it will take a lifetime, but it will be worth it because you will be a person who lives and is infused by amazing grace and a purveyor of grace to other people. You will know God's love, and then you will give it away. It's probably the most simple purpose in life, to know God's love and to give it away, to know God's love and to give it away, to know God's love and to give it away, and for that to happen over and over and over and over and again with you. And so the way I know the trip to trigger is this, because we can read this passage of Scripture, and the wife can say, ha-ha, he's supposed to start it. He's supposed to trip the trigger when he's not loving me as though Christ loved the church and laying down his life for me as a living sacrifice. Then I don't have to do my part either. And he's not doing that. I can prove it. He's selfish. Ask anyone. Including himself on his best day. He'll admit it. And the husband said, well, you know, she's supposed to be submitting to me in everything. In everything. So when she trips the trigger, when she starts submitting in everything, then we'll get on with this great show of grace. Parents can say, well, you know, it's the kid's fault. We've raised them as best we can. We've taught them all these great things. We've given them everything we have. And if they were just obedient to us the way they're supposed to be, if they just followed the commandments, they just tripped the trigger, this would be a glorious ideal of a home that we have here. See, we can all stand and keep pointing fingers at who's supposed to trip the trigger. And God says, you know who gets to trip the trigger? Whoever's been redeemed by God's amazing grace. So I get to trip the trigger. Debbie gets to trip the trigger. Josh gets to trip the trigger. Hannah gets to trip the trigger. Caleb gets to trip the trigger. Who's ever been redeemed by amazing grace? You get to trip the trigger. And you get to say this little phrase What can I do to help today? I want you to turn to the person next to you. Just say, Hey, what can I do to help? Just say that to him person next to you. Someone start, don't give them a list of things, all right? In the first service, in the first service, I had this chart wrong. I had the arrows going in the wrong direction. So I just jokingly said at the end, at, during this time, I said, well, you know what someone can do to help me today? They can change that and redo it. Someone came up and redrew that. They did a pretty good job, didn't they? Chart two looks better than chart one. Yay! I'll have them draw the charts from now on. Well, what's the, you, you have an emotional feeling when someone says that, that. What can I do to help you today? If your car was broken down, I stopped along the road, and I just wound down the window. I said, what can I do to help? There'd be some relief, right? When we say that to someone, we're extending God's grace. When we're letting 
unfailing love come into us and out of us and we say to our spouse, what can I do to help today? Instead of what can I do to criticize today and pressure you today and shame you today and guilt you today and try to get you to do what I want you to do today. What can I do to help you today? When we were younger in our marriage, we, we took a, uh, some counseling and one of the counseling questions that we had to ask each other was on a scale of one to 10, how much do you feel loved by me today? Woo! Then the counselor told us, you know, start doing that with your kids. So we go, and the first question was a scale, one to 10, how much do you feel loved by me today? And they got to say, I, you know, I'm a five or two or seven or whatever. So then you had to respond back. You had to do reflective listening. So if I understand you correctly, on a scale of one to 10, you feel loved to be about a two today. But the third question was the most interesting and most revealing. What could I do today to help you feel more loved by me? What could I do today to help you feel more loved by me? That's the grace question. That's the Christ question. That's the, I've met with him. He's flowing in me. This amazing grace is changing me. And I'm willing to give some to you. He's prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup is overflowing. I'd like to sit down and share this meal with you. In the smallest of ways, in the little kindnesses of life, that's what makes the difference. Not asking, what's in this for me? But what can I do for you today? What can I do to help you feel more loved? And let the love of Christ pervade our home. As we get ready to close this morning, I tell you, you, you have a choice. You've got a choice between one and two. And there's a reason that I was freaking out about preaching this message. And the reason was, in the last days, I was living more on flip chart number one than I was on two. wanting things my way, looking at my family to see what I could get, looking at my wife the same way, rarely giving the occurrence or appearance of, what could I do to love you today? And so I'm so glad that I had to preach this sermon today because it tripped a trigger for me that I need to be on page two. And I need your help, and you need my help. And we need each other's help in this family. To be a family of God who stays on page two. And when we trip the one, we say to each other, what can I do to help you today? What can I do to be more like Christ to you today? Because I've been with him, and he wants to flow through me. As we talk to God together in prayer, I know that these flip charts look, you know, they, they can look kind of ominous. And how do I get from one to two? One of the things that has helped me, even in the last couple weeks, realize, man, I'm going way back to one. And I need to stay with two. 
is a course that I took a couple years ago that's being offered to you called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. In that course, you, you attend to your daily soul, your soul with God. You do something called a daily office, a time with God that you return to a couple times a day. Helps you keep your soul in touch and aligned with God and what he's doing when you're quiet and when you're active. Another thing that you do in, in there is you just do some spiritual exercises and you do some reading and you do some reflection and you actually do some interaction in a small group and you learn how to move from one to two and you learn how God's amazing grace can be lived out in your life. And you learn that you can move from one to two and that God has that for us. If that's something that you want to do, you might want to go out to the information table today and ask a couple questions, sign up for the course, take the course. Um, I'm not the main teacher of the course. Deb Williams is. I'll be a guest presenter on different nights for some of the exercises. But I'm with you. Guys, I don't have it down. Why do you think I wanted to take a pass on preaching this sermon today? Because some days I'm just not living under amazing grace. Although it's there for me. And all I need to do is trip the trigger. Get back into God's presence. In that moment, I'm in his presence already. He's always there for us. How am I going to spend this moment with him and cognate of his presence or out of it? Take the time as we pray. Lift up your prayer to God today and ask him. Ask him, Lord, have I been asking the wrong question? Do you want me to ask a new question? Can you lead me to become a person of grace rather than performance? Let's talk to God together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we know in that same chapter of Scripture, it says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Jesus, show us, lead us, guide us, infuse us, empower us, change us, transform us, rearrange us, teach us, show us, empower us, convict us how to live a life of love. We need to be transformed. We want to go from page one to page two. That was your design all along to bring everything back under your leadership, under your goodness, under your grace, under your love, under your empowerment. Lord, teach us how to live empowering marriages and families and lives. Teach us how to ask simple questions with great intent in our soul and humility in our heart that say, what can I do for you today? How can I help you feel more loved? How can I bring the presence of the living Christ into our relationship. Bless us, anoint us, infuse us, empower us, make us people of risky grace, extravagant grace, because that's what you've reigned on us as we've opened our hands to you and our hearts to you and our lives to you. So, Lord, we live our lives with open hands and open hearts before you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.